What's up, good people? Michael here, host of the latest political podcast, Cuckoo for Politics, where I am cuckoo and passionate about politics, and I'm sure you are too. You wouldn't be listening. Hey, so with that in mind, grab your favorite libations, whether it be coffee, tea, water, juice, beer, wine, or spirit or two. We'll talk about the hot topics that matter to you. Let's get started. Welcome back, good people. This is my continuing conversation, talking with the Serapines. As you recall in part two, Michael Serapine is a staunch Republican, and Stacey Serapine is a proud Democrat. They take the time to share with me their different political views on the various topics. We talk about the Second Amendment, the $15 minimum wage increase, the death of Ahmaud Arbery, the Black Lives Matter movement, Stacey Abrams, and the power of the vote. Not to mention, we also delve into the political platforms of Senatorial Democratic Victors, Warnock and Ossoff, as well as we answer the question, have the police become an organization of bullies or a militia? Sit back and relax and listen to another exhilarating conversation I have with the Serapines. This is Michael, Cuckoo for Politics. Good people, Michael here still, host of the political podcast, Kuka for Politics, and I'm enjoying this conversation that I'm having with Stacey and Michael, and I hope you are too. We covered a lot of topics in the previous segments, and um, I want to touch on the local election or special election that took place on January 5th. Um, before I go on to those, the campaign, what you saw did you like the platforms or the positions that Purdue and Loeffler um, enacted or um, charged, led the charge in Congress? Um, no, I wasn't a fan of either one of them, quite honestly. I honestly couldn't even tell you anything that Loeffler had done um, other than her commercials were quite amusing because all that she said was, Hi, I'm Kelly Loeffler, and I approve this message. But there was no message <laughs> or content in the commercial. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, did, do you fight the same way, Michael? Yeah, I, I have to be honest. You know, uh, Kelly uh, Loeffler actually got appointed that that seat, uh, and she was friends. That's how they, they were friends. That's how she got appointed to that seat. Um, sadly, she is really. Uh, knowledgeable on um, legislative issues, uh, political issues. She was a businesswoman uh, who now suddenly became a, uh, a senator and did not get anything um, proposed, passed, or, um, uh, or, or, or nor did she uh, communicate with any of her constituents until the, uh, cam- the campaign started. As far as David Perdue, I uh, actually went with Stacey um, to protest out in front of his... Uh, Atlanta City office uh, during the uh, payroll support program um, where the bill was coming up to be voted on. And I said to my wife, I said, David Perdue is going to lose this election because he's been absent from his responsibilities. The state of Georgia has 
most of his constituents are airline employees and you fail to vote in support of the payroll support program. You are literally, you it's terrible. It was, it was disgraceful that he failed to step up for his constituents and, and address something that, that would help every family who is suffering right now from the pandemic. Oh, we're, we're, we're one of them. And uh, he did not even vote in support of a bill that would have helped his own constituents. He was out of touch, out of touch. And um, it was embarrassing to even hear Leffler's campaigns. One And one of her campaigns, she stood with a uh, Ku Klux Klan leader that she didn't even know his association with the KKK and sat there like they were best friends. And then you couldn't help but sit back and go, God, Jesus, this is embarrassing as a Republican. Wow, I did not know that. And then, and not even give an explanation as to why they didn't support the payroll support program. I mean, they didn't come up with an explanation at all, especially when you're saying that his constituency is large base is airline or aviation workers. Yes, correct. Especially in, like I said, in, in, in Georgia, a great percentage of families are somehow re- related to Delta Airlines or to the airline industry itself. Yeah, or uh, Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah. Correct. 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 But, you know, again, I think the problem here was they were both so wealthy that they were removed from the normal uh, the normal family's uh, struggles in, in, in Georgia. They, they, I don't think they actually understand issues that, uh, you know, that would um, help these families. They, they're out of touch. And that was exactly what my, in my podcast series, part one of All Things Georgia, the, the young voter, she said the, the candidates, um, Loeffler and Purdue didn't speak to her. They didn't address the issues that mattered to her and, um, and people um, within her age bracket. And so you're simply saying, you're co-signing the same thing that they, these they're no longer there, but they did not support the payroll support program, which is vital to uh, an industry that is part of the infrastructure of business in America, as far as transportation workers are critical um, to um, moving commerce and people across the nation as well as worldwide. So during the campaign of the special election, and I'm sure you saw tons of money of commercial ads um, from both the Democrat and the Republican. I'm sure you probably saw some political heavyweights that came to your uh, your city. I'm sure um, President Trump, Obama, I believe, came, President Biden came, um, and so forth. And you probably saw celebrities, would you say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And Everybody it, came out to support their respective candidates. And what was the message that resonated with you between Warnock and Ossoff? You know, Michael, that's actually, um, this, this is a complex issue that Stacy and I really disagreed on because um, we see when somebody is given a lot of power, things can go in the wrong direction. Uh, for example, Trump. Look, I mean, if Trump can get people to believe a message, things can go in a totally wrong direction as it did on, on the 6th of January. So that in mind, I was really torn. Uh, Kelly Leffler had no business holding that Senate seat at all. Um, my fear was the balance of power 
if you have a Democrat president, a Democrat House, now suddenly you have a Democrat Senate. There's no checks and balances. And so for me, it was a it was a bigger a bigger picture for me where I was really torn on who to vote for. Uh, do I vote for uh, the Democrats because I cannot tolerate um, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue? Or do I see that there is a bigger issue of balance of power and we've got to maintain some balance of power for checks and balances? I, in the end, actually, I was so disgusted with Leffler because I, I just she had no business being in, 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 in any kind of public office. I didn't vote for her. I voted for um, John Ossoff. I did, however, vote. Um, excuse me. I voted for uh, Warnock because that was the one running against Kelly. I actually voted, though, for David Perdue because not that I like David Perdue at all. I, ha- I felt obligated to maintain some sense of checks and balances and a balance of power. And it was that was a very hard decision because, of course, I can't I couldn't stand David Perdue. I was but more fear and fearful of a um, a runaway House Senate and, and a White House. Well, um, I want to get Stacy's perspective, but just so you to to understand the checks and balances, even if as we now it is, you have um, a Senate that's Democratic controlled, but it's 50 50 and, you know, legislation. The, the sausage of it all takes forever um, because there's so many hands in making that bill to become law. And there's also so many other interest um, lobbyists from various entities that also take that way in and how that legislation is going to be uh, drafted and implemented. So I, 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 I hear what you're saying, but I, I would see that um, it's it's not too quick. It it takes forever legislation to to um, to move forward. But I I agree with you. And uh, as a matter of fact, when Stacy and I are speaking, and she says, "Well, uh, you know, John Ossoff is saying he wants to get this accomplished now." I you know, having been in politics, I can tell you, it's great that these young uh, politicians, uh, you know, first first termers, are in with a lot of energy and and a lot of good intention. But they're going to find out really quick that the wheel of progress is a very slow rolling wheel because they're going to go in there with issues they want addressed by the, the majority of their fellow uh, senators. And the old senators are going to say, well, I have issues too. So uh, you might want to get in the back of the line and wait uh, for your turn. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and that's true. And it, that's another thing, seniority. Seniority plays in our industry as well as seniority plays in um, legislation, which is I, the irony of it all to get your voice heard. And that's why I said it, it's very it's very slow to get things uh, moving because you could hear every candidate, whether you're running for a local position um, to Senate, to gubernatorial or even president for that matter, you could say whatever you say on the campaign trail. And then when you get to the county headquarters or the state capital or the nation's capital, they welcome you, they congratulate you, meaning the organization, and then they pat you in the head and say, that was nice what you said, but uh, to be clear, you're probably going to get one thing maybe done out of the 10 things you promised your constituents. <laughs> so that's Michael, Michael, I saw that firsthand that the morning after my election, uh, Stacy woke me up because I was exhausted. I didn't get to bed till probably 3.30, 4 in the morning. And she woke me up with a front page of the Hartford Current with my face on there saying I won the election. That was probably, I guess, maybe around 930, 10, by 10 in the morning, I received a phone call from one of my largest campaign contributors, financial contributors. 
And literally, this, the they congratulated me, but I noticed they, this is how they worded it. Congratulations. We did it. Let's get together for lunch here, maybe in the next day or two. We need to get some of our issues pushed through now. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I, I, it scared me. I realized you need money from, uh, from outside organizations to fund your campaign. But you've now become a prisoner to them. Because quite frankly, they helped you get in there. They can also get you out of there. Exactly. And that's where um, what we said earlier about um, the Republican Party, they're afraid that those who are supporting Trump with his lies um, worried about being primaried and they are concerned that they won't have a job anymore. And I think there was uh, Congressman Adam Kenzinger of Illinois. Um, He's one of the 10, I think, or 11 congressmen that voted to um, impeach the president. And he's a Republican. He voted for Donald Trump earlier, I mean, in the first election. Um, But he says, you know, the insurrection was the key. I mean, we can't have someone boasting lies. And um, what do you call it? He's a lone wolf. And he's going to be primary probably when when his term um, comes up. Um, Would you run again, Michael, again for office? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Uh, because I'm really a, I always tell people, I'm a liberal Republican. I'm really a moderate. I believe in health care for people. We should not be a country this big where people are, especially elderly, are, can't afford a health care. And, and we're letting them uh, drift away uh, without any kind of medical assistance at their age. It's shameful. Um, I used to say to people all the time, I was very, very successful in my seat. In fact, I actually had leadership from our party tell me one day hey you need to slow down because you're making us the rest of us look kind of bad and they were not <laughs> they were actually being serious michael and i said listen you're on your own because if you you need to address the needs of your constituents and you will never ever have to worry about getting reelected or not getting elected they will always go and be loyal to you if you took care of their needs that's why you know honestly purdue and leffler did not get reelected they didn't do anything and you only really heard from them during the campaign ads. And you, you speak about um, Warnock and Ossoff and how they got elected. They got elected because they sounded, Ossoff sounded like Bill Clinton. He just talked to you about issues that affected your family. Warnock had a sense of humor about him. And he had a dog and said, by the way, I do like dogs. You know, and that was a, a, a shot at Kelly Leffler who said something about, he doesn't, he doesn't even like or care for dogs or something. And he made, he always came back with a sense of humor. And um, then it showed him picking up uh, his dog's poop on the, on, <laughs> in a yard, right. kind of, you know. And you couldn't help but laugh and go, this guy, he's got a sense of humor. And that's what our party today is. He's relaxed. a normal guy. Our, we have not had a charismatic, uh, personable individual run for public office that can relate to people. I'm not, I'm, I'm not. I, I, you can tell by the way, I, I'm not short of words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know how to speak to people and I'm charismatic. And I think if you have a platform that addresses families, you could get elected. But now you have an obligation to, to push your platform through and address their needs. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, you're absolutely, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. And I, this is when I say uh, level-headed um, Republican or level-headed uh, Democrat um, is or the level-headed voter without even a, a label next to it. It's the fact that there's pros and cons to both parties, 
um, what they provide, but you do see there are some elements like, you know what, we need to address. One of the issues um, that I bring up is, and I know this is, I'm talking to Georgia residents, so I don't know if you own a gun and there's nothing wrong with owning a gun, but I feel like um, as far as the gun issue is concerned, we have a lot of rampant, um, sporadic gun violence in the nation. When people go to church, people go to a club, people just sitting by. There was a recent one in um, in my town in Pennsylvania where there was a dispute between um, shoveling after a blizzard and a person shoveled all the snow to a neighbor's yard and the neighbor came out or to the driveway and the neighbor came out and it was exchange of words. The other person went across the street, got a handgun and shot the two, uh, shot his two neighbors. After that, he went back in his house and got an, um, an AK. I don't know the number specifically, but it's one of those guns that, that people, um, that has been used in gun violence before a machine gun and shot those individuals again to make sure they were dead. And then he went to his house and shot himself. I mean, that was, I was like, there's the, and, and I bring this up to say the fact that about my level headed, it's okay to say it's all right to have enforced the second amendment. A gun owner should have their own guns um, because people in large part use it for sport. Some people just are collectors and it, and it's okay, but not to address as the gun um, pandemic is like, why? I don't understand why I don't want to at least say, there's a problem. We need to see what we can do. And just like you said about healthcare, yes, there's a problem. There's a lot of people who are going um, filing bankruptcy. They can't afford their medicines. They can't afford procedures. And we need to address the healthcare. Now I I went rambling, but it touched on a lot of uh, uh, topics. So I'll bring you back in. Um, what what do you say to that? Well, Stacy and I probably don't see eye to eye on this issue. Um, you know, I was in the Marines 10 years. I have fired a great number of different types of machine guns. I don't own a, a weapon. I don't own one. Uh, that being said, that just because I don't own one doesn't mean that nobody else should own them. I think the problem with, with, our, with the guns in this country right now is people that have psychological issues, uh, that have mental uh, illnesses, are getting possession of guns that should never have a weapon. Agreed. I, I tell Stacy every day. I've never known a gun to kill somebody. The gun didn't kill them. The person using the gun in a lack of judgment killed the, killed people. Um, if we were to start taking the guns off the streets, what are you going to do with cars? Are we going to take cars off the street because a person used a lack of judgment, consumed alcohol, got behind the wheel, and killed people? Do we take the cars away? It comes down to we have to start having a better uh, system that vets applicants that are applying to have guns. It, 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 you, there's no business for some people to have a weapon. I don't care if it's a handgun or an AK-47 or an AR-15. There's no need for it for them. And, and, and to that point, since you brought up cars, I think um, if we could re-examine how one gets a gun, as you mentioned, it should take like some psychological, um, we shouldn't just be handing it out, but think about it. When you, when you have your... Um, when you are of age, you get a driver's license permit. So then you're required to go to a driver's ed school. 
Um, someone has to teach you how to drive. And then when you pass the course, you get your driver's license. And then when you purchase your vehicle, you have to register it and you have to have insurance for it. Um, and obviously you're gonna have to have some money because repairs are gonna be needed or, and, and so forth to upkeep the, the car. I feel that that's not being done with a gun. I feel like as long as you get, as long as you have a, a pulse, they'll just give it to you. There's no accountability. That's why that's I feel like we need to address somehow some type of responsibility for those individuals who would like to have a gun. There's nothing wrong with owning one, but I think it's too willy nilly. There's a lot of loopholes that I hear um, in regards to the gun shows and so forth. Yeah, I, I, I do. I agree with you. But how we um, improve the application process is um, is outside my realm of uh, knowledge. Because, okay. You know, I, I just don't know how, how in depth do you want to probe a person's personal life? Does that because they apply for gun? Does that mean we have the right to pull up all their medical records and see what medications they're taking and for what? Uh, what are the medications treating? I mean, do we have that right then to pry into their most private part of their lives? I don't. I don't know. But can, but as a pilot, aren't you obligated to provide what medications you take? Like you have a special doctor. Like I think one of the articles I read about the COVID-19 vaccine is that um, although we're essential workers, there are certain essential workers like in your position, because of what you do, you have hundreds of people that are under your purview, so to speak, when flying, that you can't take certain medications. Um, even if you got a cold, you have to, I think you have special, you can't just take any over the counter. There's some accountability on that. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, so, you, you, so one could say the same about for, you know, a gun owner because of the life that you could possibly take out. Um, maybe, you know, you may have to divulge what you're uh, taking so it doesn't impair you because again what you have is not only for sport but it could take a life out I, I agree i do agree with you there like i said there's just um to try and just take weapons off the streets that's not the answer i mean there's weapons that are uh, not traceable that are unregistered we there's a lot of weapons out there and who's going to turn their weapons in if somebody was to say oh i want your weapons turned in well only law-abiding citizens are going to do that the ones that want to keep their weapons are somehow going to manage to keep their weapons. We've just got to find a way to um, discern who should have a weapon and who should never have a weapon. And you just gave me food for thought for a special podcast. On the, on the <laughs> so uh, again, Michael, uh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, righty. Um, Stacey, I didn't give your um, your opinion on Warnock and Ossoff in that senator uh, election. I want to bring that um, conversation back. What was okay. your opinion on it? Um, I supported both of them. Um, I actually uh, canvassed with our oldest daughter, Bailey, um, went door to door um, trying to uh, talk to people and hopefully influence their, their vote. Um, I believe in, in what both of them stand for, and especially living through these, these last four years, and I've always thought this, um, Ossoff and Warnock have made it very clear the way they live their life, um, and what their platform was, is that, um, character matters. 
And for me as a woman, um, both of them, they do support reproductive rights, which I am proudly pro-choice. Um, they do want to see stronger gun legislation in regards to background checks with weapons. Um, personally, I'm not a, I'm not a gun fan. Um, I don't really see much of a need, especially for these rapid fire type, uh, weapons. Um, Ossoff and Warnock also, uh, want to try to, uh, push through the $15 minimum wage, which quite honestly, I... I'm amazed if you can even make it on $15 an hour. Yeah, yeah no, uh, agreed. I mean, there's, um, I think what the federal minimum wage is $7 and 25 cents and most states have passed other um, to increase the minimum wage, but I think Mississippi is still $7 and 20. And I even think the uh, Keystone state of Pennsylvania is still on $7.25, which makes no sense. None. Uh, <laughs> it even adjusts for cost of inflation because I think even a, a cup of coffee, whether it be from Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks for sure, is definitely $5 plus. Yep, definitely. Got one right in front of me right now. But you know, I, um, I, if you don't mind me interjecting, that's an argument that Stacy and I uh, have often. Uh, she wants to raise minimum wage, and I do believe minimum wage needs to go up, but you, it has to be a, you have to find a, a line of balance there because I tell Stacy all the time, "All right, you want to raise uh, raise minimum wage? Not a problem. Go right ahead, do it." Guess what's going to happen? Some of these businesses will not be able to uh, maintain the number of employees they have because they are going to start losing. They will not have a profit margin there to be able to keep the survivability of the company going. Oh, so they may let some employees go. So you may have raised minimum wage. Now you have people getting uh, let go from their positions of employment. Um, or it's, a, it's really a circle um, of survivability. So you raise minimum wage. That means you're going to have to now raise the cost of the product, the price of that product, to be able to cover the new uh, balance sheet of, uh, of, of the salaries that you have to pay. So now you may have raised minimum wage, but you also just raise the cost of the products out there. So you have to find a, a, a line of balance between how high can you go on minimum wage without affecting the uh, employment and or cost of the products, because it's just, they're going to keep leapfrogging each other. If you, if you go too high, if, not, um, so would you say uh, not to uh, interrupt, but would you uh, be open if legislators took a gradual increase to minimum wage? And uh, again, um, seven dollars and 25 cents, will not get you anywhere in the Northeast. But um, maybe in the South, you need, probably $7 may go, may be very well for you or an increase because like you said, you moved from the North to the South because you get more bang for your buck. So maybe a gradual in the South versus in the Northeast where it needs to get to be $15 in order to afford the cost of living. I, I, I agree with you, Michael. It, it needs to go up. And I think what you suggested there is a very, um, very logical step to do it. If you raised it by a dollar every year over the course of, a, of several years, you're not uh, zapping that particular company with a financial burden that they may not be able to overcome. Um, but, but whether you live in Georgia or Connecticut uh, or California, I, I don't think $7.50 is survival is enough to allow anybody to pay their bills and still have a, a, some kind of quality of life. Yeah, usually they, for those who earn those wages, 
um, they are working two to three jobs and it's taking effect on their health. Um, you see that with increase in diabetes and so forth like that, overweight. Um, also not caring for their family, if so, whether their spouse or children. It, it definitely hurts when you have, um, uh, when people are working two or three jobs just to make ends meet and it, it makes it for a challenge. When we come back, I want to delve into, uh, because I forgot to ask you, Michael, did you vote for Donald Trump in a second term? As well as I want to talk to you about the significance of Stacey Abrams. We'll be right back. So we're back. Another episode of Kuka for Politics, All Things Georgia. This has been a exhilarating conversation I've had with my guests, Stacey and Michael. We were just talking earlier about the minimum wage and how Michael um, was the understood and supports the idea, but there's always a hiccup when you raise the minimum wage. Um, Stacey, I didn't get your perspective. I mean, you said it earlier, but you had a, a, a following up thought. I do. Um... I firmly believe that minimum wage has to be increased significantly, actually, because as you stated earlier, and this is what I tell people, too, when they they are kind of against the idea is making $15 an hour, there's no way to make ends meet, even as a single person. Now you throw into the mix uh, a spouse or children or possibly um, a parent that you have to take care of. And when you are pulled in so many different directions in life, like we all are, if you're working two jobs, perhaps three jobs to make ends meet, I think it's very, very hard to be a parent who is able to instill some values, make sure that you're home at some point to help your children with homework. Um, people talk about, oh my gosh, the kids are out on the street. Well, the kids are out on the streets, a lot of them, because they don't have parents at home and they don't have a network of people that can help them. And when you don't have any type of structure or people that will help you, of course, you're going to gravitate to, to things maybe that you shouldn't gravitate towards because you don't have any supervision. And then that creates the issue of now you've got children or people out on the streets that get involved in drugs, perhaps violence. Um, uh, they, they don't have the, you know, the, there's peer pressure out there too. They don't have the clothes or the shoes that a lot of their friends maybe do. And of course I would never condone stealing or anything, but there's kids out on the street that don't have the supervision because their parents are out trying to do the best job that they can and working two or three jobs. But now the parents aren't home and th there's just no way for them to succeed in my view. And now there's now, now what happens perhaps is there's crime happening. Well, you, maybe people don't want to pay for increased help with minimum wage or increased social programs or places where children can go to, for a lower cost with some supervised some supervised um, care, but I look at it like I don't want to have to pay for extra law enforcement out on the streets who, especially in this day and age, we don't even know. I mean, there are a lot of great police officers out there, but we also know that there's a substantial amount of police officers out there too that are not really there to help and they're, they're aiding 
problems with violence, uh, violence in the communities. I would, I would, I'd like to add something. I would say if you're going to – there's so many different ways to, to address this issue of minimum wage. I'm a big fan of corporate tax breaks. Um, I didn't, I'm, not, I'm not saying tax breaks to CEOs. Uh, I'm saying corporate tax breaks to companies because if you can give them a corporate tax break, that means they probably could use that to offset the increase in minimum wage, for one. Two, it ensures that they will stay in your state gainfully employing your uh, constituents, the, the, the residents of that state, rather than go somewhere else to find a cheaper place to, to set up shop. So I think, you know, there's lots of different, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scale, you know, if I, whatever, if you want to raise minimum wage over here, you might have to do something on the other side to enable corporations to afford that, that minimum wage increase. And maybe a corporate tax break for a lot of businesses would be, would be a great solution. These are great comments, and you're you're right. There has to be a compromise um, to that end because, uh, as you said earlier, what a lot of people were attracted to Trump was the business mindset. But Stacy articulated clearly there there is a social aspect when an individual or individuals a family have to work so hard. There is the family dynamic that is damaged. That is the side effect of um, not doing, uh, not increasing the wage because that person is not at home or present. I was fortunate enough to live in a home where my father, my, I have both parents that were working, but I also lived in a community too that um, they had supported after school programs, in my county. And so after school, it was not only just going to um, get after school tutoring on certain subject matters, but it provided leadership. It provided a sense of community. And I had fellow um, teenagers. We hung out together. We formed our own gang, but the gang was to make sure that we excel in high school, that we all go to college and we graduate and we are still connected today. And that's because there were series of after school programs um, that that was in my county. I was fortunate. That's Nassau County in um, New York and Long Island. And I was very fortunate. And that's the thing that is needed in every given community because I think at that time they invested in, in after-school programs because that money would have to go to them or the police. And if you go and increase the police, um, revenue. That's a that's a whole different dynamic, and and you and you have less money for youth programs, like Stacy said earlier. It just gives you an attraction to alternative uh, <laughs> uh, attentions because well, if you as a teenager, you you're attracted to things that are risky because hey, it is what it is. You yeah. you actually uh, hit on something that I addressed as a uh, elected official after school programs. There were a lot of children in my district. Um, that would come home that if they were to go home after school, they'd come home to an empty home. And so I started looking at the different after school programs that were sponsored by the city. And I actually went to the corporate level, the private, you know, the private sector. And I, I remember one day I approached the Hartford insurance group and I, they actually donated to me 10 brand new computers to bring to an after school program so that the children, when they go to the after school program, can work on their homework, can get exposure to a computer that they may not even have in their own home because their parent or parents cannot afford a computer. 
Um, and, I, and I also got, you know, um, Legos to uh, donate uh, pallets of Legos. So the kids had something constructive to do in the after school program rather than just be babysat and sit there looking at the walls. They were there to maybe get their homework done with the assistance of instructors there. So you, you, you mentioned after school program. I'm a large, a very big proponent of the after school program and supporting those programs. Yeah, oh, very much so. And I, uh, and just to close off the whole uh, minimum wage um, topic, you saw that during the peak of the pandemic with the stay-at-home measures um, worldwide, um, essential workers, the grocery worker, the delivery person, um, the person who could deliver your pizza or your Chinese food, they were all considered essential workers because we, society as a whole, realize we rely on these industries and these workers. Um, and that's why I guess you see the campaign that we need to start rewarding uh, workers and even corporations without government um, push, um, they are doing it themselves, rewarding. Not all of them, some still need that push by uh, government, but um, some industries are like, you know, we have to reward our workers um, with a better cost of living because they are making they're still, we're still like getting a bottom line with these essential workers. Yes, definitely. I, I want to um, talk to, because I, I think we, in an earlier segment, uh, Michael, you mentioned you voted for Trump in 2016. I forgot to ask you, did you vote for him again in 2020? No, I couldn't vote for uh, either one. I, I, I'm, not a, a, I'm not a supporter of Biden, but Trump... Um, he was just so divisive that I, I would have felt like I contributed uh, in aiding and abetting the continuance of this dysfunctional uh, administration. It was by far the most dysfunctional administration I've ever seen in my lifetime. And um, Stacy, were you supportive of the current president? Yes, I definitely voted for okay. Joe Biden. So that, I think that, the sad part for me, though, to see was, um, and it's touched this, this, has touched a lot of different families. Um, the divide in families and their relationships when perhaps you're not voting the same way that you voted in the past and you're talking to your mother or your neighbor and um, it definitely has put a lot of uh, discord between re with regards to relationships. And it, you, you said something that... Um, he was a polarizing figure and uh, Michael could not support a person that just not only dysfunctional, but just the way he carried himself. And I think you guys hinted at on an earlier segment. Um, and I want to touch on this and Georgia plays a key role in this. And if you think back last year, last winter, I think the world was in shock, but the nation was in shock. Um, it's coming up to an anniversary and let me tell you what anniversary I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. February 23rd um, of last year, uh, Amon Arbery was killed in Georgia. And if you recall, there was a gentleman, a black gentleman who was just jogging. And then two, I believe, off-duty policemen um, thought he was doing something and they killed him. And we did not find out until later, weeks later. And then we all know about the George Floyd, and that took place last May. And that erupted the nation as far as, and continuing as far as the Black Lives Matter movement. 
it was significant in a sense because I, and I bring up um, Ahmaud Arbery because it was starting of a trend of last year and George Floyd just lit the match and it was done. I, I want to bring on two questions. What do you see in the, the, the aftermath of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and the leading up to the Black Lives Matter and the lack, in my perspective, of Trump um, addressing the race issue? Anyone could take that lead. I'm going to start with um, this is this is an issue that um, I am very um, intimate with, especially down in Georgia, but nationwide. But I'm speaking as a resident of Georgia. The police departments have gotten uh, way too big, unchecked, and they're allowed to uh, behave in ways uh, unbecoming of their of their badge. And there's no reprisals for that. There's no uh, corrective action. In fact, Governor Kemp is proposing a law here in the state that if a police officer does something, uh, say he harms you, you cannot turn around and civilly sue him because he's a police officer. And I and that's perpetuating the behavior that's gone on unchecked for years. Um and again, I, I, I when I speak my opinion, I'm not doing. I'm I'm hoping not to uh, make it personal on any particular group of people. But the average police officer, my own personal opinion from some I know, were uh, either bullied in school, didn't pursue a secondary education, but they became a police officer. They feel like they belong to a protected group, a fraternity, if you will. They have a gun and a badge. And now you're going to hear them speak. Um, and they, they're allowed to behave uh, with, in unchecked manners, whether it's uh, the gentleman uh, with his knee on uh, George Floyd's neck. I, I just, I, I, where these behaviors are happening because you're not dealing with people who have been trained, uh, obviously, in depth enough to know how to handle themselves in these moments. The, the two individuals you speak of that uh, killed Ahmad, uh, they actually weren't cops. One was a, uh, he did like background investigations for the police department. And, and the other one was his son. Um, again, and, that, and guess what happens? Their behavior was covered up for quite a while by the fraternity of which they were associated with. Um, but if you or I behaved in a certain way that some of these police officers are doing today, we, we, you'd be in trouble. In the state of Georgia, and I'm, I know this, you cannot call a police officer a name, for example. You couldn't say um, anything. You can't, if you're going to speak to a police officer, you have to say, I believe, I think you're this. You can't say you're an idiot. You have to say, I think you're an idiot. If you say you're an idiot, you, you can be arrested in the state of Georgia. Really? Yes. And when, and it's, and, and, and we all know when we get, if, um, if we encounter a police officer, and and when I say encounter, for the most part, it's usually for a moving violation. You drive, you're speeding, you pass a red light or a, a stoplight or something like that. And we all are like, oh, depending on the time, you get a little angry, like, oh man, this little idiot. I mean, you, you're saying that me off the cuff, obviously not calling the individual, but just the whole idea of like, oh man, I can't be I'm being pulled over. Um, you're gonna get emotional. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, let's let's take it a step further. Whatever happened to the police officer that would pull you over and give you a warning and say, hey, 
You know, we all do this at times. Don't 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 try to curb this behavior today. They are ready and excited to arrest you or give you a citation um, for the very thing that you see cops do on a daily basis. Go speeding by you on a highway. With no on their cell phone. Yes, right. But <laughs> they are holding you to a standard that they are not holding themselves to. And again, it's because, and, I, and again, I truly believe a lot of these were bullied in school. And now they're going to let you know who's got the gun and the badge. So but now, that being said, I do know several police officers that are outstanding representatives of the, of the terms to protect and serve. They are in there that they're in that position for the real correct reason. But a great number of these police officers, if you know, if you actually look, USA Today did an investigation on police departments nationwide. And there was a tremendous alarming number of police officers that have been cited time and time again for um, excessive abuse uh, 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 with people. It happens every day and it gets covered up and it's disgusting and they should be held accountable for their actions. Oh, it, very much so. And I'm very appreciative of the reforms. I believe that uh, the 25th century reform that uh, President Obama was putting in play in second in his second term was kind of basically thrown out uh, when Trump came into office. And we see, I'm sure that will be readdressed once we get a confirmation of uh, Attorney General and the Biden um, starts moving in in that direction. And I agree with you. In large part, there's so many numbers of um, law enforcement that are there for to protect and to serve. And I could recall, and I'm sure many of you, um, both of you probably experienced this at one point or another, you worked a red eye, you just get it, you want to go home, you don't want to take a nap, you, you're you already funky from the airline, <laughs> you know, and you want to take off the uniform, shower, either get your cup of coffee, whatever the case, you just want to be home. And I know I drove um, and I was one exit away and I saw the lights and I'm like oh crap it's like 6 30 in the morning what the heck does he want and so he pulled me over and he says do you realize um he after getting my um credentials and he says do you realize you were driving like you were drunk I'm like huh I said I'm, he saw me in uniform he says are you sleep deprived I'm like oh yes and I'll have to say he escorted me all the way to my exit and when he saw that I could drive all the way home he let me go that is the, a, a police officer. He saw, he didn't obviously notice that I wasn't um, drunk or anything like that, but he could see how tired I was. And it's given, instead of giving me a citation or a warning, which he clearly had the right to do, um, he just knew that just escorted me um, um, to my nearest exit and where I could go home safely. That's right. I mean, that's, that's what yeah. it's about. I mean, you have to cut people breaks every now and then for things or that, and that's with anything. I think yeah. I think na nationally speaking, you know, the, the police, again, uh, I, I think their behavior is um, one of the root causes for the Black Lives Matter movement. It's one of the root causes for a lot of people no longer supporting the police departments uh, the way they were always so loyal to the, you know, back the blue. Me, for example, I, I cannot say that I am a big supporter of the police departments anymore. They have got an outrageous budget allocated to them every year. They buy everything from boats to armored vehicles. They are running away with becoming a militia, if you will, and no longer a force to protect and serve. Was it Eisenhower that said um, on, when he was leaving 
um, office. And he said, and he said uh, the military will be a military industrial complex. I believe law enforcement agencies have gone that in that way too. In certain communities, you would need some, you know, to in order to um, be the police officers need to be better equipped to handle certain situations that takes that takes place. Um, small towns, I don't think you need a tank driving down because most of the right. time you're going to have either moving violations or small, small petty crime. I'm not saying murders will take place there, but it's not it's not as extensive as in large populations. But there is, is something to be said with um, that when I get pulled over, I know that that officer um, could look at me differently versus if you were if you were driving and you get pulled over but that can't be said um stacy i think you commented before that you got pulled over by the police and it was not it was you were sleep deprived it was because um you want to go on with your story yeah I, i would love to um i was coming home from a trip and my flight arrived very late. I don't remember why, but it arrived very late. I was driving home at around two o'clock in the morning from the Atlanta Hartsfield airport to my house about 20 minutes away. And I'd gotten off on my exit and I had noticed in the gas stations right off of my exit that there was a police officer sitting in the gas station parking lot. And didn't think anything of it, just noticed it. I knew I wasn't doing anything wrong. And then I noticed, uh, Oh, probably a quarter of a mile down the road. Now this police officer is behind me and not a problem. I'm not speeding. I'm not doing anything. I pull into my community and pull down my street and the lights flip on the siren wheels and the police officer approached my car. Now I will say this particular car was an old beat up Hyundai Sonata that had been, it ran great, um, ran great, but I mean, it was a junky looking car, no doubt about it. And um, the police officer approached my vehicle and of course I rolled down the window and I said, officer, what what are you pulling me over for? And he said, oh, uh, sorry, um, I, thought, uh, I thought you were a black guy. What, he thought you were a black guy? And that there was, uh, he told me that the, that he had a report that there was a car that matched my description that was involved in a burglary. Now, he could have very well, as he was behind me, ran my plates to see if my car was registered to the community that I was driving in. Not that it would have been illegal for a car that wasn't uh, registered in this community to drive through. You can drive wherever you want to. But um, yeah, it was a, it really put a bad taste in my mouth. Wow. So you got pulled over again, not for a moving violation, but to be clear, because you appeared black. Yes. Did you file a report? Yes, I did. I went to the uh, police station the next day and I did file a report. I never heard anything about it. There was not ever any follow up. But um, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand. And Michael, what do you, how do you feel about that? Well, again, I mean, I, I, there's I, I for one, I had a police officer come to my house uh, and arrest me because um, 
I had reprimanded two young uh, boys that were sitting on our stone columns at the top of our driveway. I told them to get off the columns. And um, th- I guess one of the children, uh, his family was friends with a police officer. So they called the police officer and uh, told them they wanted me to get scared uh, by the police department. So I had a police officer come to my house one night and arrest me on a uh, felony charge of terroristic acts and threats only to find out that the whole thing was, was a lie. And the next day, the, uh, the police district attorney said, Hey, uh, you go ahead. Yeah. We're sorry. You can go on home now. You don't have to stay here anymore. You can go home. And I said, well, you realize that was a bad arrest. And he said, yeah, yeah. I said, so I'm going to get an attorney and I'm going to file a civil suit. He, and literally the district attorney's response to me looked at me and said, I'm going to give you some advice, save your money because I'll litigate you till you're broke. What behavior goes on unchecked. And I am a white male who served 10 years in the Marines. Um, very law abiding. I've never, I, I've never had a reason not to support my police officers, but again, uh, down, my experience in Georgia has been that the police departments have gotten too big unchecked and their behavior is um, other than honorable in most cases. Yeah, and and, Stacey experiencing that, or I'm experiencing it, it goes to show you it's a fraternity where they're not held accountable for their actions. So, so true. And um, I, it it definitely is something that we as citizens need to hold our elected officials accountable, um, state and um, federal, in regards to addressing the issue. And I think that's why the Black Lives Matter movement resonated not only nationwide, but worldwide because of they see it in their own towns, their own communities, um, the abuse of power. Yes, obviously, we rely on, um, and that's another fault too of society. We put so many burdens on law enforcement that, and those who, individuals who become, some can handle it, but some cannot. And there is such a protection uh, that those who cannot, there is no means for them to leave. And I think once you are, um, you know, you get reported that you abused your power and you're found guilty, uh, you know, that person now could go to a different township or a different state and still get a job. And that and continues the whole the whole problem that's what needs to you know to be addressed and if you kill somebody and you're found just like the cops who did it uh, um, george floyd um they shouldn't get their pensions they should lose everything because you took a life abused your 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 public trust and that's how mm-hmm. I, I i feel with that i would be um it's hard to talk about the georgia elections if we don't at least acknowledge um um, Stacey Abrams. I, I and I re, I bring that up for the simple matter of this, is that when she lost the race in 2018 to the governor Kemp, your current governor, um, she took a blow, and I'm sure she was disappointed. But I love the fact that she was able to register voters and um, and get more people involved. And I think. People felt like in 2016, why does my vote matter? It doesn't matter. But I think after four years of the previous administration and um, Stacey, along with other groups, they, they had to show that your vote does matter and that you need to participate in the process. 
how do you feel about um, the significance of Stacey Abrams? Or not? Um, and if you have a different view, it's okay. Uh, personally, I um, I think st- I, I like Stacey Abrams. I think that she's done a lot for, to uh, combat voter suppression. She, in 2018, she started the organization Fair Fight. And um, that's an organization that trains teams to go out and educate and encourage young voters of color. And um, I, I think it played a, a very pivotal role in um, this particular election. Michael? <laughs> well, I, you know, my view of Stacey Abrams is not, in, is, is, I would say I'm more in the middle, uh, my opinion of her. I think what she's doing is a very honorable um, movement where she's trying to get people to register to vote. There's a there's one thing she does stand for that I don't support, and she opposes voter ID law. She she doesn't think it's necessary for you to have any kind of ID to become uh, a registered voter. And I, I oppose that. You, you need to show your ID to buy a beer. Okay, but you, can't, you, you don't need an ID to go vote. And I feel, though... I, you know, I understand she's trying to get people registered to be have their vote heard and be, you know, a part of the election process. I think, though, it has to be done in a, in a fair and just manner. You need to have an ID. It's 2021. you got to have some form of, of government issued ID and uh, to, to vote. And, I, and I, I'm a supporter of that. I don't I don't support her in, in that aspect there. But I understand what she's doing. Um I, I, she actually stands for an issue I like. Well, there's an, another issue I like. Instead of, um, you know, and I realize you're talking about Stacey Abrams' um, involvement in the election process, but there's another issue that she does stand for. I, I agree with her on, and that is uh, she believes in getting money spent to improve the public school system, not so much the charter schools, but the public school system, because not everybody can afford to go to a charter school, and. So rather than going to charter schools because the public schools are failing your children, she wants to start spending more money to improve the education you're getting in the public school. I support her on that. I just uh, I don't I, I commend her for initiative to get the vote out, but I also uh, I'm a supporter of uh, ID to get a, to register to vote, and she does she's not. So I would just add to the to the conversation. Um, um, and, and the symbolism of Stacey Abrams is the fact that she lost and instead of um, wallowing in her loss and people will say the loss was controversial because at the time Kemp was secretary of state and he didn't recuse himself so he was part of the whole process as far as certifying the vote um, um, but I like the fact she licked her wounds and kept moving forward Um Voter suppression, and you touch on, this is going to be another podcast discussion, and I might have to invite you back, uh, you guys, because you, <laughs> I mean, this, whole, this whole conversation has led so many other ways. But the voter ID, and I, I get the understanding, it's 2021, we should be having voter ID. And then you hear that, especially with the mail-in ballot, the, um, you know, there's controversy with that. I feel like there are going to be individuals who don't have a voter ID. And l- let me, to, to elaborate, there are going to be certain segments of society, because of their age, their license was taken away. 
They can no longer drive. And that's usually their driver's license. They don't travel as much, so their passport expires. And now, so I'm talking about seniors. Um, so during the whole, um, there are individuals, usually, to my knowledge, that no longer have their ID, but they've been voting at the certain polling station for so long. Their signature clearly is different from when they were 18 to when they're 30, 50, and now let's say 80 plus. Um, with arthritis setting in, their signature is not going to match, but they have a certain voting pattern um, or they, they, they actively vote. And I think that's the reason why some um, laws are saying, you know, why we're putting voting ID if there has not been systemic uh, voter fraud um, with having ID. I mean, I get the argument to have it, but this is where the pushback is, to my understanding, is that there are certain segments of voters of the electorate that no longer doesn't carry a, 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 an ID anymore. Hmm, that's a good point. Well, so then for- you, 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 we, you, now you, Michael, you, you uh, touch on another issue. Maybe we need to find some kind of um, ID for people that no longer have an active driver's license or but that, that would be specific for um, voting. I mean, you got to have some form of ID to write a check to buy alcohol in the grocery store or in a bar. You have to have some form of ID. Uh, now, you, you know, Michael, you just dated yourself. What, what is a check? <laughs> well, but, but, but you know, uh, I, my mother's 85. Uh, and she still has her license, of course. Mm-hmm. But I think even if she was 88 and lost her license, she needs some form of ID to identify herself. Do, do you have a problem with the mail-in ballot? Well, no, I'll tell you this. Uh, the mail-in ballot, I feel, is fine as long as you... Um, you've identified yourself to, to register to get the mail-in ballot, like I had to do in Georgia, because I thought I was going to be flying during the election. So I went and got a mail-in ballot to mail-in. And then when I did, when I was home for the election, I actually went to uh, the uh, to vote, and they told me I had to go home and get my mail-in ballot and bring it back to them before I can vote. And that, that, that's correct. My state did the same thing. And that's obviously to prevent fraud. Sure. Individuals from voting twice. I think that the means to make it easier for people to vote should be by all means. I mean, if we're going to keep the archaic Tuesday um, on a weekday, yeah. Um, yeah. instead of like in other countries, as we all know, they have it on a weekend or they make it a holiday. So large uh, of the electorate could participate in the voting process because having it on a Tuesday, on a work day, um, it's, it's very challenging. Either you leave early to go to work or you're stuck in traffic on your way back and polls close. So the means to have it either mail in your ballot, go to um, your polling station on election day, or it's big in the South, um, um, souls to the polls. I mean, I kind of like that idea when after church, your uh, buses are going, taking voters to the polling station so they could vote early. I think by all means, if we're gonna keep Tuesday then you're going to have to expand the means for people to participate and vote and uh, and voice their concern and their opinion um, instead of minimizing. Because you see, you hear from um, unfortunately Republican late um, led state legislatures trying to curb voting um, in certain districts. Um, you hear like it, it was in Texas where they had a one polling station, 
but the the community at large had millions and people had to there was no even public transportation to take them to that polling station um because you had to get there by car and that was a that's a sign of voter suppression instead of making it easier and that was the state of texas yes i remember that i I think the election process michael though needs to be uh overhauled a little bit this is this is 2021 and election night is no way ever the defining uh moment of who won nowadays they, they seem to have the election, and I love the early voting. It gets it kind of thins out, allows people to have the luxury to go vote when it's convenient for them to vote during a stand, you know, set a limited number of days prior to the election. You can go vote because you may not be available on Tuesday to go vote. Mm-hmm. But the absentee ballots need to be counted as they're received. Why on a late 11th hour on a Tuesday night are they saying, well, uh, the election's going to – we won't know the results yet because we have to count the absentee ballots. Why aren't you um, counting these absentee ballots as they're being received? Why are we waiting to the midnight hour to start counting ballots? It, it, it's, it's asinine. This is, this is where the federal government comes in. And I, since the election process is dictated by each respective state, certain states allow absentee ballots and mail-in ballots to be counted as soon as they get in. In certain states, they allow them only the day of election day after it closes. So that's where you're going to see um, disparity um, amongst various states and, and counties because of that. Now, if there was a, a standard, um, and I think I want to—I don't know specifically—but the late John Lewis, he was pushing for um, to increase and voter strength, um, voting rights, but it got held up by um, the the former Senate Majority Leader McConnell because everything that comes on his desk is dead automatically. Um, I'm I'm hoping things will change now that you have um, Schumer as a Senate Majority Leader. But nevertheless, I I agree we need to expand the Voting Rights Act and make it more um, uh, easier. Because like you said, in 2020, if we're going to, 2021, if Voter ID, I always say, I mean, right now your phone, you do your banking on your phone, you could come in from another country and your passport information is on your phone. You don't even need to see a customs agent. Everything is done on your phone. You pay your groceries by phone. I mean, I, I mean, you could book a air travel, a rental car, a train ticket, a bus ticket, a cruise, everything on a phone. Why can't you vote on a phone? I, I mean, maybe that's something that needs to be explored and the technology to go along with it. Yeah, that's true. You're absolutely right. Well, Michael and Stacy, I talked, we talked extensively. Is there any closing comments or points you want to bring up that... Um, that you would like to uh, address? You know, I I was just going to say, we have talked for quite a while. And the key word there is talked. Um, I've even said to Stacy at times, Stacy gets so heated. If I don't always agree with her on political issues and we end up in an argument, I'll sometimes I'll say, would you just listen for a minute? We can talk about this and we can disagree on certain issues without it becoming an argument. And I really hope that as time um, wanes a little bit here, away from the Trump administration, that people will, again, be more civil in discussing issues where there's not always going to be um, agreement on the issues anymore. You know, I, agree. It, it, you know, I used to tell people, um, 
I, I learned this easily, very quickly when I got elected. I don't care um, what you do. You are going to upset 50% of the people out there, whether it was with good intention or ignorance on your behalf. You will upset people, but you have to learn to express your opinions civilly, respectfully. And sometimes you're going to have to agree to disagree. And, and that doesn't mean they're a bad person. That just means, well, we just didn't see eye to eye on this issue. And also, I'd like to add, and Mike brought it up earlier, you hear this from a lot of people. Oh, you don't discuss uh, religion or politics or finances over the dinner table. I I don't agree with that, that perspective. I think the more that we talk about all of those things and we make these things very easy to talk about and accepting of wanting to actually listen to different people because everybody has a different viewpoint or a different background. Um, I think that's the only way that we're ever going to learn and succeed and, and contribute to society in so many better ways is by having discussions about all of these things. Agreed. And I, like I said um, prior, I started the podcast because I wanted to voice, not my concern, but talk to other citizens who are passionate about politics and hear their perspectives. And um, some I agree with, some I don't agree with, but it's always been civil and comical at the same time. And I think the post-Trump, that's why I'm hoping even the Republican Party purges the QAnon, all these individuals to get back to civil discourse. And uh, I don't know if you saw this, but I was watching um, CNN once and they were talking about the COVID relief and they were talking about the different issues back and forth, a Republican proposal and a Democratic proposal. At the end of the conversation, the anchor person says, wow, what a relief to talk about policy differences versus some conspiracy theory or the way the former president was berating an individual just for not believing in their same beliefs. And I said, that's refreshing. And that's why I'm hoping that we go back to um, people who have different opinions, people who are passionate, and after the vote is done, you can still have a beer or a cup of coffee with that individual. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, fully agreement. Well, Michael and Stacy, thank you for joining me on this special series, All Things Georgia. I would like to extend an invitation for a future podcast discussion. Again, you guys gave me insights on um, probably the Second Amendment as well as uh, probably voting. But um, this has been a very uh, exhilarating conversation that I have. So I would definitely um, extend that invitation to you both to come back on another episode of um, Kuka for Politics. Michael, I would accept that invitation. I've enjoyed my time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. You guys have a good one. We'll be in touch. Thanks, you too. Well, that's a wrap, good people. Another great Kuka for Politics conversation with my guest, the Sarah Pines. There are so many takeaways from our discussion that it's hard to pick just one topic. Believe it or not, even after the recorded ended, we continued to talk about various issues, the, bomb, the Obama years, including foreign policy. Now, we would have probably continued talking into the wee hours of the evening if it wasn't for our stomachs beginning to make the sounds feed me. I am so glad they agreed to come back to do another podcast episode, as they were passionate about the issues. Personally, it was refreshing to have a political dialogue with people who have different perspectives, yet can articulate in a way that is not divisive. Despite their political differences, they have a mutual respect for each other. 
It seems we as Americans have moved away from that recently. Respect. Another concept Americans have moved away is the reality of facts. Now, America has a rich history of conspiracy due to its anti-government, apocalyptic religious and entrepreneurial traditions. We all remember the Salem witch trials. Falsehoods led to the countless deaths in the name of religion. During the 1950s and 60s, there was a Red Scare, fear of communism taking over America, led by Joseph McCarthy and the John Birch Society. It almost subsumed the country. In the past two decades, we have witnessed a bigger explosion of right-wing confabulation, fueled by anti-purism of the Republican elite and the grievance politics of its base and new opportunities to spin conspiracies like climate change denial, the mask policy, Benghazi. Who could forget the birtherism controversy spearheaded by the former occupant of the White House? Now, Donald Trump did not create the rise of the right-wing conspiracism. That's a fact. But he single-handedly transformed it. Note, his cult believers still think he won the last election, despite no evidence of voter fraud. They regard the insurrection on January 6th as an act of patriotism and not what it actually is, treason. It appears most of the paranoid style in American politics has been most pronounced on the right. Now, I'm not just saying this, others as well. David Frum, the former speechwriter for George W. Bush and currently senior editor of The Atlantic Magazine, commented this on the Farid Sakari GPS program, a CNN Sunday morning news program. He commented that the Republican Party are morally bankrupt. They have sold their soul to the base of the QAnon believers. In essence, they've run out of ideas. The former president's continued grip on the party is strengthening its worst elements. We see the hate filled by Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. It seems to be eroding the scope of other possible Republican rising stars, such as Nikki Haley or Marco Rubio. Now, as my guest stated earlier, the party's mission should repudiate individuals who promote falsehoods. But look at their track record. 147 GOP lawmakers voted to overturn the election results of 2020. Recently, 43 GOP senators voted to acquit Trump for his actions for inciting a riot. Now, if they don't turn away from Trumpism, they will struggle to credibly later and the, the continued decline of a Republican Party is for sure. Congressman Adam Kinzinger, a Republican from Illinois, stated, Our party is doomed. There's not enough proud boys or far-right fringe groups to compensate for the people we've alienated. Now, Remember, my guest Michael tried to change and voice his concern within his local GOP, but he was told, your kind is not welcome here. In the end, democracy thrives on a contest of ideas. It muddles through a war of interest, but without the shared reality of facts, it cannot function. Issues facing America's present and future, such as student debt, police reform, health insurance reform, tax reform, race relations, minimum wage, 
gun safety measures, COVID vaccination plans, infrastructure, the list is endless, are very popular with the wider American electorate. This is not a Republican or a Democrat problem. This is an American problem. We need political leaders to tell the truth and have guts. In the book of then-Senator John F. Kennedy, in Profiles of Courage, he discusses the problems of political courage in the face of constituent pressures and a light shed on those problems by the lives of past statesmen. He describes the three types of pressure faced by all elected officials. Pressure to be liked, pressure to be re-elected, and the pressure of the constituency and interest groups. I do not know what to make of the current affairs of the Republican Party. And not like the Democratic Party does not have issues of their own. But they are more in tune to the issues facing the everyday person versus some abstract collusion deep state society taking over the country. We as Americans must restore our faith in our democratic institutions or we will peril as a nation. I close with this quote by Dr. King. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Michael, host of the political podcast, Kuka for Politics. I ask that you join me in another podcast. Don't forget to download and subscribe to wherever you download your podcasts, as well as follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next conversation, be safe.